Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. V. Viana, the guitar singer for indie punk group Gutless, has ska roots. She grew up in Brazil and learned about ska from her mom. She heard not only two-tone ska, but the music from several local groups like Paralomas do Sucesso. As a teenager, she lived in South Florida and found community and friendship at the talent farm and the local ska scene. It was the same scene that Jer, i.e. Ska 2 Network, came up in. And though she played ska back then, it's been a while. That is until earlier this year with the release of the gutless ska single Burning the Bridge, featuring Jer on all the horns. Today, V tells us her full story and how ska was a significant component that shaped her life. Of all of our guests that I know from ska Twitter, I've actually met V. Oh, really? When did you meet V? Very briefly. It was at a fest last year. Oh. And I was winding my way through the crowd. And uh, I noticed their their two tone hair, but I was like, "Hey!" And they said, "Oh, hey!" And that was that was our whole interaction. Best friends forever. Best friends forever. Now though, <laughs> that's what happens at fest. You run into somebody, and then you're best friends forever. You combine that with being uh, mutuals on Scott Twitter, and it's a solid bond. Nothing can can break your relationship apart. <laughs> <laughs> you were telling me that. The first time you ever hopped into a pit was at, at an Aquabat show? <laughs> yeah, I, I was 14 years old, I believe. 14 or 15. It was like towards the end of my freshman year of high school. And like, I think I, like, like I, I was in that stage, you know, of like being like a young punk, but still kind of figuring out what Sky is as its own genre. Um, but I was like, you know, around like message boards, punk news and stuff. And I, I got really into Fury of the Aquabats and Floating Eye. And when I saw they were coming by, it was the culture room in Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, I like just immediately jumped on that. And that was like my first like regional like punk uh, type band like that I had seen live as well. I had gone to like a few local shows uh, that like my older brother or his friends would play. But yeah, that was like my first time seeing 
like a touring band of that nature in the punk realm. Do you remember what song you jumped in the pit during or was, was it just there? They started playing and you jumped in the pit. I think it was that. <laughs> yeah, I think it was that. Um, and I know Victims of Circumstance, um, really cool uh, Florida ska punk opened that show. And that was like kind of the beginning of me really jumping into the Florida ska scene. Um, you know, like before going to all the talent farm shows that I would start going to. Yeah, it's something really special about Florida and ska, honestly. <laughs> so what was your take on how you were to behave in the picks. I remember some of my early shows. I think some of my early shows that had active pits were Primus. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> you know, I think, and it was a little, it was a little aggressive, but, uh, you know, I, I did my best to sort of evaluate the way people were and try to mimic it to some degree. Gosh. Yeah. I, I want to say that I did the same, but honestly, there's a good chance that I was very ignorant. <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely like starting to like skank and stuff because like I think at that point I was like watching a lot of bands live videos and like kind of got the gist of skanking. Uh, (laughs) So it was a lot of doing that. I don't think I was like shouldering people or like throwing elbows or anything. (laughs) But I I think I, I think I did crowd surf. I will say I think I did crowd surf and that's something that as an older person i'm way more anxious about the safety of others <laughs> yeah um cult- culture room has a a remarkably high stage did you stage dive there uh, i don't think i stage dived i think i did the thing where i like made eyes with people and i'm like hey i'm a scrawny fucking 130 ounce <laughs> 130 pound like kid can you just lift me up i want to feel something <laughs> I don't think I've ever crowd surfed. Adam, have you ever crowd surfed? Yeah, it's a, it's a bad. I I weigh a lot more than 130 pounds. I currently clock in at uh, 275. So, uh, me crowd surfing is always a bad idea. <laughs> I I think my most memorable crowd surfing experience was like a fucking Andrew WK show, like nice. also during high school and. It was one of those things where I have like a very cinematic memory of like a security guard eyeing me and being like, you're about to be out of here, kid. But then Andrew WK like tapped on his shoulder, like just went, no, 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 no. Like brought me up and like brought like 20 other people up because that's just an Andrew WK show. Yeah. Uh, and like it was like after um, Never Let Down, uh, I just like jumped and felt like I was soaring from the stage. now um we've we've talked about andrew wk before on the show andrew wk doesn't play ska but do they have ska energy oh absolutely yeah i mean just in that sense of like dancing a lot and being very active in movement but also the lookout for everybody type of energy yeah i i would say that i felt a lot of parallels with the ska shows i had been going to yeah kind of aggressively positive too andrew wk oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) which i was all about you know in high school because i think um as i was getting into like punk and ska and stuff really i've always been around some punk music i honestly since the age of like seven i was getting into like the ramones due to like my uncles and stuff um but like in high school i remember just kind of having this attitude where like it felt like the people that were into like indie or like 80s Britpop or like stuff like the smiths like really looked down on me Mm. so i kind of leaned into like the hyper posse stuff pretty hard 
where I was like, eh, whatever, at least I'm fucking having fun. <laughs> <laughs> what is it that you liked about the Fury of the Aquabats so much? Oh, like like frantic energy and like, like yeah, I was always really into horns. Uh, and I think that comes also from like Brazilian music because I was born in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, and so much of that was like reminiscent, you know, like in – you know, the way the, the horns harmonize and like really fast, like ska and stuff. Cause I knew I was definitely into like fast music at that point. And yeah, it, it felt good to have something that like didn't take itself seriously as well, but like was, but was still really tight musically. So you grew up in, in Brazil. How, what age did you, did you come over to Florida? I was 10 years old, 10 years old. Yeah. My family moved to Miami. Um, I was born in Fortaleza, which is like on the northeastern coast. Like, so it, it, I feel like, yeah, like not a sh- not a long flight from Miami, you know, because it's like northernmost point of Brazil to like southernmost point of the U.S. East Coast. <laughs> when you think about your childhood, what was like? What's the strongest mental image of that? Can you paint that picture for us? It's mm, a good question. Uh, Definitely, like, a lot of, a, a, a lot of, like, I don't know, I guess, like, trying different, like, identities or whatever, trying mm. to keep up with other kids. Because I, I think there was, I didn't know, I didn't see it as such back then, but kind of, like, a period of assimilation, mm-hmm. you know, and where, like, oh, I really want to keep up with the cool American kids. I want to listen to what they listen to. I want to watch what they watch type stuff. And like really struggling with the language. I think there was like two years where I really struggled to speak English and speak with folks. So that that's something that like really stood out to me. Because in Brazil, like prior to that, it was just learning to play guitar and kind of being a really indoor kid, just with video games and tsunami or whatever. <laughs> what what age did you start playing guitar at? I started playing guitar right like nine years old. Yeah. So like on my, my last year of like living in Brazil, uh, my mom got me like a a cheap, like nylon string. And I started going to like an instructor that was just like down the street from my old Catholic school. (laughs) What was the first thing you learned how to play on the guitar? So it's between Blitzkrieg Bop or Smoke (laughs) in the Water. (laughs) Both great choices. Yeah. I right away knew that I liked like chunky power chords. Oh yeah. (laughs) That, yeah, you learn that power chord and it's just off to the races. Like you're like, oh, I can move this anywhere on the E string and anywhere on the A string. All right, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, and like I said, like I, back in Brazil, I think I was like seven years old. I, w- I was hearing Blitzkrieg Bop like everywhere because it was that weird point where it was like, it was on Tony Hawk, it was on the Jimmy Neutron soundtrack. And then I noticed that an uncle of mine had like, um, like an old like Ramones DVD of like interviews and like archived music videos. And yeah, that was like me really being like, Oh yeah, punk rock's a thing. And I'm all about this. And that led me to discovering like rancid and like getting really into green day and everything else that was around at that time. And like eventually found my way to like less than Jake and like all of the Asian man records stuff. Where in um, Brazil did you live? I lived in Fortaleza most of the time, which is in the northeastern coast, but I also lived in Brasilia, the capital, which is like 
more south central you know closer to like sao paulo rio mm-hmm. area yeah and fortaleza is an interesting place because it's you know the biggest metropolitan city in the northeast like area but the northeast area is you know way more desolate as far as like public transportation and you know funding and stuff goes you know because it's not like the big world hub <laughs> like those other cities are no, you told me that your mom introduced you to ska. Yeah, uh, my mom was really into the specials, <laughs> and also in, into a lot of um, a lot of Brazilian artists that were blending ska. And this is something that I only started noticing, like in recent years, that I as I you know make an effort to reconnect with Brazilian music and Brazilian culture. A lot of bands from like the eighties, nineties, and even early two thousands were like playing a lot of ska even bands that weren't strictly ska um but yeah i think it started with the specials i have like a very vivid memory of um being at the beach at like eight years old or something like that between seven and ten range and there was like a stage set up on the beach and a little cover band and they played a message to you rudy and i just immediately loved that song and like my mom knew it so like she like turned me on to all of that like after that mm. and it, that was still a few years for me like really clocking into what Scott was as its own genre but yeah like that was really my first real like moment of infatuation with it <laughs> i was doing some research on um the brazilian ska bands and what, yeah kind of to what you were saying like i didn't really find you know from the, the older the older like eighties, nineties and stuff. It's too many like strictly ska bands, but definitely ska was something that a lot of bands played within their different kinds of genres and rhythms. Yeah. It's super interesting. Um, I feel like I, you know, very much see a parallel with like what was going on in the U S too. Like during the big, you know, third wave boom, like a lot of bands just like started finding ways to incorporate it and blend it into what they were doing. And I, I have noticed that too, in a lot of MEPB or MPB popular Brazilian music, um, there was a lot of, yeah, just folks like adding like fast uh, upstrokes and horns of like the ska nature. Does any bands come to your mind uh, in terms of like, older bands that played ska. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a, a big one for me lately has been Chitans. Um, that's the Portuguese word for Titans. If anyone wants to do a Google translate to easily find it. <laughs> uh, yeah, Chitans are great. And I, I think their first record was around 86. And there's a really good Portuguese translated cover of The Harder They Come by Jimmy Cliff. Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. And they do it like super fun too. There's like the horn, they gave it, they put horns in it that very much have like an eighties dance energy, (laughs) which I really dug. Um, And yeah, and and they've always, um, yeah, done that too. Like even one of their much later albums, 2002, uh, they did a record called A Melhor Banda de Todos os Tempos da Última Semana, uh, the greatest band of all time from last week. Uh, <laughs> kind of like a snarky you know satirical tune almost to the energy of sellout by real big fish but it's like a really fun like ska song that 
I've even like started covering like on off. Like <laughs> nice. Yeah. And another one that I've been getting more into recently is Los Hermanos. Um uh, which they kind of phased out the ska sound, but their first album is just straight up ska core, like beginning to end. And I think that's like mid nineties. Mm-hmm. It, it's wild. Like, I feel like it sounds like, like keys be nights, like <laughs> catch 22, <laughs> but it's like right around the same time. And yeah, just like weird, like intense, like hardcore beats and like weird synth stuff. Yeah. Really dope shit. And, um, one of the vocalists, Rodrigo, um, I'm fucking up his name. Uh, Rodrigo Amarante, uh, he's still really active. He's doing uh, like a lot of baroque pop type stuff. Um, I think did his, his last record came out on um, Polyvinyl. Oh wow! Beautiful record called Drama. But no more, no more Skycore. No more Skycore, <laughs> <laughs> which is always a shame to lose. Yeah. Yeah. God, I remember discovering Scott Core specifically. That was like uh, 15 years old. And it was my friend Mia in high school. Like, you know, because I was doing the more like getting into posy, lighthearted, like pop punky type Scott. And Mia was always on like the hardcore end of things. And I, I think that was like my first window into like hardcore music. And she was like, hey, you like Scott, right? Check out this band, Stuck Lucky. And <laughs> I was immediately really hooked and i started digging into flaming tsunamis and then the whole community records scene nice and yeah and, and then a few years after that i um just kind of discovered discovered asbra Cadabra from all of like the tours and like connections they were making in the u.s and i was like oh shit hell yeah brazilian band out here yeah <laughs> do you know anything about them aside from you know just us, us bad time record consumers that are familiar with the new record and stuff. Honestly, not really. And I would love to know more. I know I've caught them before. Uh, I believe they've done a tour with my friends in Lasabi who also uh, were in community records uh, for a bit. And they were like a, a Sao Paulo, uh, you know, kind of post hardcore boy with horns type band. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, no. So that band is actually like, one that I could stand to like learn a, a lot more about. Cause that was like, I'm already so far removed from like what was going on in Brazil and already it's still a few years away from cashing back up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think they started in the mid two thousands, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they've had, they've had, they put out several or a handful of records before the, the most recent one. Yeah. I think I started cashing on to them around 2014, 2015 mm-hmm. when I like first moved to Gainesville. Cause I moved to Gainesville 2013, like right after I graduated high school. What drew you to Gainesville? Oh, you know, the typical stuff fest, uh, <laughs> seemed like a, seemed like a good place to start like a punk band. It, it's funny. Cause like I did the whole, like, yeah, mom, dad, I'm, I'm definitely going to school there. I'm, I'm going to community college and spending most of my time playing in bands. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think Gainesville was really special to me, too, because although, like, I love the camaraderie and community from places like the Talent Farm and all the other spots in, like, the Broward County area, I didn't live in Broward County. I was neighbors to Broward County in Dade County, and I loved driving to Broward County because it was a completely different energy. Like, kids there fucking showed up they were super stoked to meet and see new bands 
Miami-Dade County very much had more of the, this, uh, you know, smoke cigarettes outside until my friends are on. <laughs> mm. Not to paint, paint with a broad stroke, but that was certainly my experience. And so coming to Gainesville, I felt like there there was way more of like that, that sense of community, uh, but now in a place in which I actually reside and play infrequently. I, I want to just go back a little bit to Brazil. Um, I, I have to forgive me. Um, I, when I see Brazilian words, my brain wants to pronounce it like Spanish words. So I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing these right. <laughs> They're good. <laughs> Os paramalos do successo. Oh, Spadalamos do successo. No, that's like my mom's favorite fucking band. I should have brought them up. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're like the first Brazilian band to play ska. And I think they even date back to the 70s. I don't know if they were playing ska back then, but in the 80s, it's yeah. my understanding that they were like the premier band to be playing ska in Brazil. Absolutely. I, I And I think like they're... They definitely have records, I think, like starting like in the late 70s. But I, their first record that really blew up, I think, was 82. Mm-hmm. And, mm. and yeah, no, that that's like an arena band. That's a band that like like forever can just pack like hundreds of thousands of people into a show to this day. Wow. Um, I, I think they're still active. They, yeah, I think they're still active. Um, certainly a band that's like... Um, you know, I don't know the whole story, but I know that's a band that has, has had to take a lot of hiatuses due to personal health issues and things. Always been super active, from my understanding. And yeah, they uh, they, they very much had that kind of two-tone mixed with Brazilian pop style. Yeah, definitely eclectic from what I was hearing. Uh, there was one, um, Oculus, o- Oculus, I think was yeah. the song I liked a lot. <laughs> oh, I love that song. Yeah, describe that song for people. Oh my gosh. It's a really cute song too. Cause, um, the, the, the singer is like singing about how like he worries girls don't like him cause he looks dorky with glasses. <laughs> cause that's what all clothes means. That's, that's trans, that, that's the Portuguese word for glasses. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's a really fun kind of like bouncy, like poppy song. Aaron and I both grew up in households with parents that weren't super keyed into like interesting music. What was it like having a mom that like, I don't know, actually cared about music? It was interesting because it was kind of contentious because my dad definitely didn't. Mm. Uh, <laughs> didn't like music or didn't like her music? He claimed to didn't to not like music. He cl- wow. like, and, and, and I feel like a lot of that might have just been like stoic old dude stuff. Like, oh, I don't want my kids to get into music because, sure. because drugs exist or whatever. <laughs> um yeah, and and I think he maybe felt like a little, I don't know, just anxious about the fact that I was getting into particularly punk rock at a mm-hmm. very young at a very young age. Um, no, but my mom, it was it was like constantly like we always had like CDs of like her favorite like artists um, on the car. Also, a lot of like old movie soundtracks, a lot of Dirty Dancing in Greece, like on my way to school. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think I very much got an early like passion for just listening to music, like like listening for instruments and like orchestrations, like at a young age from just being that exposed. But but yeah, there there was that that weird relationship a little bit because like when I started playing shows at like fifteen and stuff, my first few shows were at Churchill's Pub in Miami. 
Uh, definitely a place that shouldn't be letting me in at 15, but they <laughs> did most of the time. Did you have a fake ID or? Oh, no, they did not care. Oh, okay. That's the, that, that's the thing is every show would say 21 plus, but they would also just have bands of high schoolers there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was like, really dumb joke. Tw- 21 plus in, in the streets, uh, all ages in the sheets. <laughs> God, that's a terrible joke. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when Adam and I grew up in it, we grew up in this town called Gilroy in California. And uh, mm. there was no place to play, but uh, there was a local band in high school called Dutch Courage played kind of like yeah. a funk funk rap sort of thing and they had talked oh, right. to this local dive bar called Sandrinos mm-hmm. and they're like well, we're going to do a show we're going to bring some people it, complete dive bar like CD dive bar <laughs> and yeah. uh, the band was all in well I maybe they had like one member or two that were 21 plus but yeah mm-hmm. it was all kids <laughs> and, and I went there was no there wasn't you didn't even have to pretend to have a fake id it was just yeah all kids at the seediest bar and then they there was a few more shows that happened there but yeah i i don't think that lasted too long the best thing about dutch courage is that all their songs were like seven minutes long because everybody <laughs> oh everybody got a solo and everybody had to rap like a good like 32 bars yeah oh that, that that's honestly beautiful i love that <laughs> and yeah that was kind of the same energy that churchill's had like yeah you don't even need to worry about having a fake id because like no one's gonna check you especially if you're like one of the high school kids that's always there which was definitely a thing um but yeah even now um you know 27 years old been to a lot of dive bars since i think that might be on the top five of the seediests uh, <laughs> Also, rest in peace because they yeah. unfortunately did not make it through the pandemic. Yeah, I think Sandrino's is in my top five of seediest bars I've ever been to. <laughs> I, I literally just drove past where Sandrino's is or yeah. was. It burned down. Um, oh, oh no! Oh yeah, yeah, we, we yeah. buried the lead there. Yeah, but it's it's now like it's now like sketchy, like month to month apartments and like a liquor store. Oh damn! So like it's it's maintained the like gnarly vibe, but. Yeah, the, the spirit the spirit hasn't left the site. Definitely. Do you know a band called uh, there's another Brazilian band. Uh, they started in the in the late 90s called mm. Movies Colonias de Acuja? I don't think so. Oh, okay. That was another one that kind of appealed to me um when I was doing my research. Yeah, dang. Yeah, sorry so, sorry I'm uh, slipping on those a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> Do you know this the uh, a newish newer band Olia Pardo? They're um pretty active on online and uh, Twitter and stuff. Yeah. Oh, I did not realize they were on Twitter and stuff. Yeah. They came up uh, recently because I, I was like catching up on a lot of things on Spotify and I saw a, a Brazilian Scott playlist and their stuff came up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good band. Really good band. Yeah. I'm like just now starting to listen to them. Like actually. Yeah. I think they even do some like radio stuff down there too. Oh, wonderful. Um, like promoting ska. Yeah, do you recall seeing like what city like they're around? No, I don't. Gotcha. Gosh, yeah, it makes me wonder if they're like uh Sao Paulo area. I mean, I know you were only a kid, but what was like the what was like the popular music of of in Brazil happening kind of around like you turn on the radio and this is kind of mm-hmm. what was popular? Well, I feel like it was always um and I keep going back to this term, MPB. MPB, it literally stands for popular Brazilian music, <laughs> which is 
you know, that's very much just like the flavor of pop, like through the decades and stuff over there, like where it, it is like pop music as far as like chord structures and like the, the type of hooky melodies. But, you know, with like, um, like influence of like samba rhythm and like instrumentation, um, like an influence from like bossa nova and things like that. Oh, oh, but the thing is, the Northeast had a particular, a particularly controversial uh, genre of music. I think it was like really looked down on from most of the country because it was seen as like a hick, like redneck thing. Uh, okay. Called Foha, uh, which is F O R R O with an accent. Uh, and that's just like extra, like bouncy lively like accordion led music mm. okay yeah it was like super speedy and like super shouty with like a lot of accordion shredding and like it was definitely i was i was like kind of into it again just for the sake of like pure energy but i do remember there being like kind of a stigma um which honestly i can just say that for like the northeast of brazil as a whole like People always talk about like yeah us nordestinos uh, like yeah like I- I- any kind of you know looking down on like oh you're not as metropolitan you're not as high class yada yada it's very funny to think that you know it's kind of the inverse of a lot of the stereotypes people make in the U S where it's like people look on the south look down on the south like that versus the north mm-hmm. so kind of inverse that. Yeah, it's always interesting to learn about um, how people within a country stereotype other parts of the country. Yeah. When I went to uh, Oaxaca for uh, for my book back in 2019 to go to the ska festival, mm. Scotsalon, uh, a lot of the bands, a lot of the bands were from Mexico City and stuff, and the, they were telling me that Oaxaca was um, looked down upon, and uh, because pe- there was more. Um, more darker skin native people there. Mm. And so it was like, like, cause they were trying, they were explaining to me racism in Mexico. Yeah. And that was, that was their example. Yeah. It's like, and that, that was like a way to, that was like a way to insult somebody was to call them Oaxacan. And I was, that just, it's just it's so weird. It's so weird to hear how universal like racism is, um, is a tool for all people <laughs> to use. Oh yeah. I mean, it's basically, you can find it wherever imperialism has sunk its claws, sadly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, no, Latin America, definitely not exempt. You know, I've definitely noticed that in Brazil as well, like just different forms of like colorism, which it's particularly interesting in Brazil because like, I, I, I feel like I don't want to mess up any statistics, but I feel like it's close. It, it's like over like 40%, like nearing 50% of like folks are like, you know, like some form of like being mixed race. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it it's certainly not something that I comprehend to like uh, the extent of a person that like regularly lives there. But yeah, there's th- yeah d- different uh, definitions for like different types of ethnicities and like different forms of discrimination that are very much, yeah, like come down to like, yeah, like skin tone of varying shades. I had actually, I, this was a long time ago, but I remember hearing about that, about Brazil. And my wife was telling me that, cause it was a, it was a study about how this idea that race 
the idea of race is um, a construct mm-hmm. because every, you know, like Brazil is an example that yeah. there was these different races that would not, the not the way that we think about race in the U S and of course our ideas about race have changed over time as well. You know, yeah. a good example being that Italian at one point was not considered white, but now is considered white. Right. I had heard that there, the, some of the concepts about race were very different in Brazil. Certainly. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it, it feels like there's different forms of, you know, categorization um, as, as far as like the systemic racism uh, goes there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, no, that's honestly a very interesting point and something that I think uh, about a lot, not just the way that, you know, racism is clearly a social construct, but a social co- construct that takes different forms in different societies. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And no, very much like. A, a, a thing that I felt like, um, yeah, like from childhood, just like noticing the ways people around me talk about other people and like, yeah, it, it, it was something that I, I think I started perceiving like pretty, pretty early, like definitely before like moving to the U.S. So you moved to the U.S. and now you're an immigrant. Is that something that yeah. you um, had to deal with much or did you have have ways to sort of manage that? Yeah, I think that there's been, I've definitely had ways of managing that. It it took different forms, you know, because there's everything from, you know, kids like picking on me for having an accent or like not like grasping the language as quick as others might. But then there were other more like internal forms of assimilation, you know, to go back to the whole you know, you're, 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 you're like 10 years old and you're about to become a teen. The sad reality is you do want to be cool <laughs> and, and, you, and you do like, yeah, want to feel like you have peers and shit around you. So like, that was like a point where I started to say like, uh, all, all this Brazilian shit that like my mom listens to is lame. Like, yeah, like I'm going to listen to fucking ACDC or whatever. <laughs> but yeah no so that's the thing is i i think i felt all kinds of different um struggles like as an immigrant some internal some external certainly um and that's something that i kind of started writing about a lot in my music with gutless you know i the new record that um we're like seeking to release this summer after a lot of delays um has a song called Homeland Insecurity, um, which um, has both Portuguese and English vocals. And it's essentially a song about how, like, the the migration process has sometimes left me, like, not knowing what my true home or my true homeland or whatever really is. Like, I feel like I do still kind of contend with feelings of, I don't know, uh, isolation from uh, both general cultures and mm-hmm. I, I and I also like the election of Bolsonaro, like kind of like hit me like in a certain way, you know, I was already I, I grew up, you know, in a Catholic school. So I was already like struggling with unprocessed feelings of queerness and uh, gender dysphoria. And Bolsonaro was elected like when I was like kind of shortly out of the closet as a trans woman. And it it, it messed me up. I was like, oh, damn, it, this, this feels like a, a rhetorical abandonment of folks like me, mm. you know? And, and I also kind of simultaneously felt this shame 
of like having stayed distant from the culture for so long and yeah and and so that's kind of what that song homeland insecurity ended up being about you know where it's like oh yeah i left i left behind uh the the first like home country i've had to end up in a place that feels very bigoted uh and spiteful towards me uh only to see the place that i came from also be bigoted and spiteful towards me is i know that he's 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 been pretty bad um is he a bad is he a downgrade or is it kind of what it's it's always been like there for political leaders that's the thing the thing about bolsonaro is he oh, he's definitely not equivalent i feel like people make too many equivalencies between this but he, there's definitely a similar energy to like trumpism you know mm-hmm. where there's mm-hmm. like th- yeah yes there's been like uh like right wing like christian based like you know fascist light presidents before but like he kind of just comes in with like this very brazen energy like he's like he, he doesn't really dog whistle as much and i often go back and forth on whether that's a good thing or not like he's been on television like but like encouraging parents to like hit their kids if they quote show signs of gayness you know wow. yeah and has very much like kind of fed into like a lot of like racial like white supremacist rhetoric as well and i mean i think that's another thing that's important to note about brazil is that despite there being like such a such a large population of various uh communities of color and various different like uh ethnicities it it is primarily like a a white government and like oh like a government of white like leaders that's interesting. That's something you wouldn't really imagine, like thinking about Brazil. Yeah, it's you. You really wouldn't, but it's it's been such a such a fact of like its infrastructure for so long, and it is sad to think about. But I feel like it's also one of the the the, the first signs that yeah, things were never really from from my examinations, never really politically like you know in the side of the oppressed. Um. But yeah, with Bolsonaro, there very much was just kind of like, yeah, this energy of, uh, oh, we, we, we have, we can hide like our bigotry, like way less now, you know, like a lot of, a a lot of those things started becoming like less shameful to say in mass. I have often wondered that in the past, is it better to know, is it better to have the racists be, um, hide their racism or be, you know, let you know that they're racist. But I think the Trump era has t- showed me that it's better if it's better if they're not brazen about it, because I think for one thing, it encourages other people who maybe aren't maybe bad people, but maybe have mm-hmm. some influences in their life. It kind of encourages them to go down that path. And I also think that when they're more brazen, they're more likely to actually act out violence against yeah communities mm-hmm. that, you know, that are op- oppressed or disenfranchised. And that's just not good. It's, I mean, um, <laughs> yes, it's not to like be questioning people like, are they racist or not racist? But it's still better to not feel like afraid that they're going to actually act out in violence. Yeah, you actually, yeah, you make a really good point that, that there is like a validation of the rhetoric. I definitely see that. And I think that's what I felt with Bolsonaro. It's mm-hmm. like, I've definitely, and that's another thing is like, I, it, 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 it does surprise me that like Brazilian, uh, Brazil has like, 
had such early strides in like, you know, like marriage equality and things of that nature, because I don't know, maybe this was just my experience as a closeted kid. It always felt like overwhelmingly homophobic to me and overwhelmingly like bigoted as a whole. But again, my experience, <laughs> my, my region of the country and, you know, my uh, surroundings and schooling. Uh, so it, so it, it kind of felt like, yeah, it just went a more mask off route. And I, it, mm -hmm. it, it did kind of, I don't know, it, ex exacerbate all those prior anxieties I had, you know. So now we, you moved to Florida. You, you, we, we started the show. You talked about that Aquabash show. You said that it was your first sort of like bigger band, but you'd done, you'd seen a few local shows. Yeah. What was, what was your introduction to local music and like the idea of there being bands and, and a scene or whatever? Yeah. My introduction was, um, my older brother, Lucas, uh, he was playing in a crossover thrash band called acidosis. Uh, <laughs> and that man, that man fucking rips. I still like go back to their old recording sometimes, like particularly like their first single tied to the tracks. I shit rules. Uh, and, uh, it was led, it was led by, uh, my friend Ben Katzman, um, who still like does like a lot of music, um, under Ben Katzman's the greaser is, uh, his current project. And I, I, I love Ben cause he's always had like this energy of like, really wanting to deliver just like power pop but with like intense like shredding and like thrash influence <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so, so yeah and my brother was starting to play churchill's pub so like churchill's pub was like the first my like, like my first conception of a diy space and like i i definitely took for granted the fact that they had been around since the fucking 70s like, I think that place has been a venue since like 1975 up until like recently. Um, and that's definitely nuts to think about. Um, but yeah, that was like the first venue I knew of. And like back to like the thing with my parents, it was, it, it, there was like a sense of contention, you know, cause I started playing my shows there at 14 and 15. My first show ever was there. Um, and you know, my dad would like, kind of like try to shame me out of it or I don't know, maybe not shame me out of it, but like just express a lot of discontentment. Uh, and I feel like my mom wanted to be more supportive, but kind of like felt this pressure of like, you shouldn't be letting your kid do this like type thing. Like, which I, I sympathize with a lot of it, you know, cause I was a 14, 15 year old kid, like, you know, kind of hanging regularly hanging out in a rough part of Miami until 2 a.m. on school nights. Uh, <laughs> um, but after Churchill's Pub, uh, there was also Sweat Records, or still is, I think, which is a record shop, like literally neighbors to Churchill's Pub. I think even like connected like the same building. Um, and yeah, and they actually put on all ages shows that were like all ages on the flyer. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, literally next door, same area. So those are like my primary spots for booking when I was in Dade County. And, and then, uh, I started learning of the talent farm, like maybe a year after. And, you know, and this is how I met like folks like Jer and stuff, um, and saw like their first bands and a lot of like the pop punk sky and hardcore bands that were being formed. And like, yeah, it, 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 it kind of had this energy of like, Oh, in Dade County, we were playing with like, you know, 
random uh, adults who kind of had their own things going on and didn't give a shit about what we were doing um, with my early bands. <laughs> and then with the talent farm, we're just like, oh yeah, no, everyone here is a weirdo the same age as me. And we're all hyped on this. <laughs> so tell people about, um, so the first time you saw Jer, they were in... They're in Funkman's Inferno. All right. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know how much they've told you about Funkman's Inferno, but that band was a goddamn trip, and I always loved seeing them. Well, let's hear. I have not heard much. Yeah, tell us about Funkman's Inferno. So uh, I, I want to clear something up real quick. They were not a funk band. They had one funk song. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the name of the one funk song? I think it was Take Me Back to Yesterday. Um, nice. gosh, I, I wonder if Jared's going to be upset about this. <laughs> no, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and they did do like one album that I think I, I still have it on like a little like plastic sleeve, like here somewhere. Um, but yeah, they were like a 13 piece band. Most of the time I've seen them have even more members. They had a fucking flute wow. player. They had a tuba player. <laughs> Like it it, 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 it was so beautiful because it was just like, oh yeah, these are clearly all kids from like the same high school band class, just doing like a ska band together with uh, instruments that are unconventional even for ska. <laughs> Did Jer play uh, trombone? Jer played bass in that band. Oh yeah, I've seen pictures. I have seen pictures. Yeah, uh, and that was back when we were doing like the the themed shows too. Like we did like the Rocky Horror Ska Show. And, uh, gosh, and <laughs> what, what was the Rocky Horror Ska show like? Give us paint a picture. There were occasional Rocky Horror co- uh, covers, but it was mostly just a Ska show where people kind of, you know, dressed like a little goth or like a little draggy. Uh, <laughs> which, <laughs> thinking back on it, that's actually very rad because so many of us were just like young kids that, like, I don't know, maybe wanted to like. Uh, try out or flirt with queerness, but we're like, you know, like too closeted to think that. I, I think Jared and I had, um, and our friend Sadie, like, said something along, along the lines of, like, wow, it's kind of nuts to think how many kids from that uh, talent farm scene have come out of the closet in the past few years. <laughs> <laughs> Was, um, did you, were you aware of any local ska bands or punk bands before Talent Farm, or was that your introduction to the local scene? Mm. It honestly, it kind of was because I was definitely, I, I definitely like knew like punk bands like in Dade County, but to be honest, they're kind of hard to remember again because many of them just, I don't know, I guess didn't really bother like making like a connection besides like sharing a bill. There was also a oh, band from my high school, The Alternate Stage. That was, uh, there, uh, I actually briefly did lead vocals for that band. And that was pretty fun. It was kind of like that uh, easy core pop punk with breakdowns type stuff, but with ska. Mm. Like ska parts and horns. And uh, my my favorite thing was doing like a ska cover of Kids by MGMT. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a good song to turn into ska. Yeah. (laughs) And I was playing in a band called Sluggage, which was like, you know, Punk with Scott Parks, uh, that type of band. It was called Sluggage? It was called Sluggage. How did you come up with that name? Oh, God. It was, I think I was just like looking at like, I was really into the Descendants and like looking at all the songs like My Kids or whatever that they end with H-E-E. Mm. And I was like, oh, put that on Slug. Eh. 
not that much thought beyond that. <laughs> so no, uh, no slu- sludge, sludging metal or anything. Oh no, just straight up <laughs> pop punk with the occasional Scott parts. <laughs> yeah, I would have come at that completely different. I would have thought it was like slow luggage. <laughs> <laughs> i'll save that one i'll, I'll save the god I could, I could name a record that and just be like if you know you know uh, yeah <laughs> no but yeah and for the most part i think it was just like yeah like us the alternate state and the occasional like bands from our high school that would like be on off and then like yeah with tom farm i knew like funk man's inferno there was a great band called great scotch um, which like kind of had like the streetlight energy, you know, of like trying to tell big, big stories, uh, with a kind of like, I don't know, I, I, I guess cinematic <laughs> type of energy. Gosh, there, there was, there was like a lot. I'm like blanking right now, but Don Farm was just sweet. Cause like, and many people call that their second home and stuff. Um, cause it was just. Yeah, it, it, it was like my first time being in like a venue that actually felt like a community of people who like regularly show up and like want to be friends with everybody and want to get like every band's information to link up later. Can you recall your favorite Talent Farm show? Oh, my favorite Talent Farm show. Gosh, that's that's hard. I, I, I do think back to and I know Jer has talked about this because I listened to the episode they did with you recently the uh the no damage show <laughs> which was the show where everyone uh covered damage like besides like two bands including my shitty band uh oh you you were in one of the bands i was at sluggish played that show i'm pretty sure okay so let's get let's 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 uh let's get a little deeper into this <laughs> so before the show um was that part of your set was that something you planned specifically for this show i think people were my my memory of it is i think people were murmuring about it and giggling about it because it had already been a thing that that song was very frequently covered by locals uh and i think we all just knew the song so we're like hey like if people are doing this bit we can easily get in on it type thing (laughs) (laughs) but were you surprised that every all of the bands but one or two played it honestly i don't even think i was (laughs) i don't even think i was because just covering that song had already become kind of a staple (laughs) like it like it almost like was already its own like haha thing but Mm. that was like the first time that i saw like yeah like six or seven sets with different renditions of damn it by blink 182 so that one is special for that reason um (laughs) gosh but one that stands out to me a lot, and like I saw like Joyce Manor and Hopalong uh, play there, like 2012, 2013, like towards uh, my senior year of high school. Um, nice. yeah, yeah, that was a fantastic show. I think like of all things was like a really recent record. Uh, Get Disowned was like also I think like just released. Yes, and and that was also like you know. Uh, it's funny when I think back to my high school years, like the first half, definitely more like posy ska, like frantic pop punk. Uh, and then the second half was when I started getting really into emo and indie, uh, <laughs> mm. which is funny. Cause I, I feel like I used to have like such, I don't know. I, I used to have like a bit of snide like <laughs> towards that. And it, it was very much just like silly and associated with like, again, like, 
artsy Miami kids who would like look down on ska and like pop punk. But yeah, because like I got really into Jawbreaker like junior year. And like Bomb the Music Industry was like my favorite band towards the end of high school. And, you know, I, I think that was kind of just the big Van diagram. They were like the band that did like everything like in my eyes. Yeah. That that's eventually like kind of like what led to Gutless, you know, those influences. Cause Gutless started uh 2015, 2016. I was I was playing solo with the name 2015 and it kind of became a band 2016. Um mm-hmm. so for a while I was like kind of leaning into just like the jawbreaker type sound, you know, like sometimes being fast, but other times just being like, you know, a little drony and arpeggiated and like still like loud and screaming mm. and it feels real good to have released the ska song with that project this year <laughs> yeah yeah uh, we yeah yeah the, the first single that we did of this album burning the bridge it's funny because it wasn't a ska song it was not a ska like like i first demoed it with, with like that first verse with the ska part just being palm muted and it was when we got him uh at my drummer timmy's garage that um, I don't know. I, I guess if it, it didn't feel like it was hitting it for me. So as a joke, I started doing like upstrokes in the verse and I was like, oh, wait, no, this is actually way better. <laughs> and this was like after years of me, like also trying to write ska songs, but kind of feeling like, you know, so something about the ska songs I was trying to like write for a while just felt like, I don't know, like too basic in my eyes i had this feeling of like uh i respect the genre too much to do a half-assed job with it (laughs) (laughs) yeah so it it felt good that that one just kind of like landed that way and i also kind of had it in my mind you know that like with that song i particularly really wanted to just challenge that notion of ska being necessarily fun happy and goofy because um and i guess this I, I should probably throw a content warning uh, for this section because that song is primarily about like sexual assault and like, you know, being kind of like made to feel small by people you consider your friends, like for the sake of like hazing and like, you know, putting others down. Um, so I was like, yeah, I guess I, I think I really want to fuck with people's expectations of ska and <laughs> like deliver all of that in our, in the ska song. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, people have this preconceived notion that ska is silly music, but it's, it's not, it's not, especially when you look at its history, like, and like it's political history. Yeah. So that, that and I was, I was also like kind of thinking about, you know, like bands like the clash who like, you know, weren't a ska band, but had like really good ska songs that were very much like, explorations of serious topics and i think i was really inspired by that uh, how has the song been received honestly it's really really good <laughs> i think a lot that uh, definitely one of the the be- the best receptions i think this band has ever gotten um having jared played on it um <laughs> helped a lot and i'm, I'm super mm-hmm. grateful by, for how hard they went too because um yeah, this record has been in production for a very long time. It's kind of been consuming me since 2019. Uh, when we first started tracking in the studio, but then got too busy with shows, then the pandemic hit, then, you know, kind of were unable to get back to the studio. So I 
started just seeking to get all the stems in a hard drive to like finish it at home. And then it was like, it was like at this point, like two years after I had gone to Jer's house to like uh, ride horn parts that I hit them up and I was like, Hey Jer, by the way, the album is still happening. It's not canceled. Do you still want to do those horn parts uh, that like we bounced around a while ago and they were down. And um, to my surprise, like a week later, they sent me like seven different wave files of horns. I think even more if I count like uh, doubles, because it was like a trumpet, a tenor sax, two different trombone uh, tracks, like harmonizing. And actually, I think two different sax sparks harmonizing. And then um, I told them that this part of the song is very chaotic and I want it to sound like a panic attack. So feel free to just record some noise. They sent me like, like just four or five different tracks of just trombone slides going. (laughs) (laughs) And that was like really fun to like mix in there. Yeah. So knocked it out of the fucking park and did way more than I requested or expected. The video for the song, um, there's footage of your band with Jer playing trombone. What, yeah. when, what, what, what was that? Was that an actual show or was that like a, just a video shoot? Oh, yeah, that was an actual show. Uh, it's because it's very hard to get our band together outside of actual shows. <laughs> but that was the fest. That was the last fest that happened. Um, yeah, last year. Oh, OK. Like right before I right before I moved to New York, too. Um yeah, Jared was around, and at that point, uh, like the album version had been fully tracked, so like they knew the part, and they're like we bumped into each other like the day before, and I was like, "Hey, Jared, want to do Burning the Bridge?" And they're like, "Yeah." And uh, a friend of a friend of mine just thankfully like recorded it, and I literally just took the footage of their phone and inserted it in there. <laughs> so before before this, you uh, you made a record called Some Voids. Yeah. That's right. That was 2017. It's still a very special and dear record to me. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about the record and what's kind of behind it? It seems like, you know, there's a lot of personal journey elements of the record. Yeah, certainly. Because, yeah. And the thing with Gutless in general is I kind of started it as like this project of, you know, practicing vulnerability in music. Because, yeah, a lot of the music I was writing in high school, a lot of it was, you know, good time music, uh, <laughs> for the lack of a better explanation. And the, the closing track of Some Voids, The Breaker, was something that I wrote even way before that album or that EP. And I knew I wanted to reserve it for something like really solid. I, I considered that the first good song I ever wrote. <laughs> um but yeah, it's very much me kind of just being honest about feelings of depression and anxiety uh, from the beginning. And even um, the song Growing Apart is a song about, you know, me really seeking to find the words to describe dysphoria. Because it's a song essentially about wanting to come out of the closet, but having this fear that it's it's going to shake up like all of my friend groups, my family, and just like all, this all-consuming anxiety around it. Um, and, and just this idea of like, oh yeah, like this feeling that, that, that some shit is just never going to get resolved. Like this kind of doom and gloom mode, like surrounding the idea of coming out of the closet. 
which thankfully has not been the case. <laughs> but it, it, yeah, it's um, some boys is very special to me because it's it, it, it is a record like of like my perspective as I'm in like the cusp of really actualizing a lot of things about my identity and about like my struggles. So you wrote it when you were there at that place in your life. Um, where were you at when you released it? Were you still kind of in that same place or had you already gone through some of these things like coming out? Yeah, I was one foot in, one foot out. That's how I describe it. Because that mm-hmm. record came out March 2017 and I came out October 2017. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, so that was like the thing. And I think the thing is too, um, at that point, I was living a little bit of a double life, you know, between like uh, the punk scene in Gainesville and like my family in Miami, you know, where um, I uh, in Miami, I did what a lot of us gals refer to as boy moding, Uh, (laughs) you know, just really kind of like repressed like the entire life that I was living in Gainesville, which was I was starting to uh, find comfort with feminine clothing and like makeup and like different forms of expression and you know being more openly queer with the friends that i trusted around me there uh it it was getting to a point where i where i was compartmentalizing that that really really hard and starting to get the oh are you gay questions you can just tell me like i'm not gonna think anything about it you know like those kind of questions that people don't realize are placing a lot of pressure on you Mm mm-hmm yeah, so I kind of spent like a good few months, like, yeah, after the re- the release of that record, just figuring out, you know, how 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 to go about like coming out and stuff, because it's like I was starting to realize that like this is real and I need to. That, that it was it was definitely a bit of a tightrope walk for a while, you know, and a lot of that was you know me just kind of le- feeling my anxiety around it fester and like having a lot of presumptions about how people, particularly family, would react. And it was mostly positive. You know, my mom has been a fucking superhero since day one. She's been awesome. Like, she works uh, as an aesthetician, um, aesthetician and uh, works in, like, she does waxing and laser hair removal. And I remember the first time I said, Mom, I'm trans, uh, one of her qu- quickest responses was, it's okay. You want to go to the clinic? Uh, <laughs> I was like, "Oh, right on!" Gosh, <laughs> that's that's a privilege not many have, and I have to count myself grateful for that. Being on the other side of that announcement, do, do you feel like uh, not having all of those presumptions and and worries like hanging over your head? Like, how does that feel? Oh yeah, it honestly, it, it's it's almost hard to like compare like my life now and then, you know, because. Mm. I, I, I was so consumed by those presumptions, you know, I, it definitely feels like thing. It, it's easier to just trust people now. I think that's the main thing is I still struggle with anxiety a lot, but I walk with a lot less distrust of those around me, you know, like, obviously I can't speak for like every rando in the street, but it's like, I no longer feel like this. Th- this need of distrusting like my family and like my friends like so that's like yeah. really huge and like also just having found like you know uh queer and trans musicians and like 
just yeah finding folks that like not only make me feel seen but like empowered like that's mm-hmm. that's been huge for me and definitely something that i feel took a a good few years you know i feel like i didn't really start um like yeah being like having a sense of community related to that specifically like until really like two two years into my transition which has been about five now with cutlass you have some songs where you sing in portuguese Mm. is there when you do sing in portuguese is there usually a reason or is it just like you have these it's almost like you have these tools of which to use and sometimes this tool makes more sense than the english one you know Lately, it's been more of the latter, but when it started, it actually was more of the first because <laughs> uh, I, I did all of some voids in Portuguese. I have, um, you know, Alguns Vazios is the Portuguese version of that record. And it's the same instrumentals. I just recorded new vocals. And funny enough, that idea actually first came from Vinny Fiorello of Less Than Jake. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I was working at the guy like years ago i was like 19 20 like in college and like i was an intern at like the paper and plastic warehouse and you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) very much just still kind of like a starry-eyed um teen onto onto young adult that was like whenever he was around i'd be like hey finny do you want to listen to like this thing that i just tracked uh (laughs) so uh he heard some very early versions of some voids and like kind of planted that idea it was like you speak portuguese right like you know that's like a a whole audience that you're potentially like not reaching like if you don't make use of that and it it took me a while to really act on it but like that idea kind of stuck with me for a long time um because i did the portuguese where i released the portuguese the portuguese version like 2019 january of 2019 uh, I actually just kind of dropped it on the day of Bolsonaro's inauguration, um, you know, as like a form of uh, there's uh, I, I feel like queer and trans Brazilian voices are about to be hella shut down right now. So here's here's me uh, <laughs> just putting that out there, you know, like here's a a record that's explicitly about closeted tra- trans pain. Uh, now sung in Portuguese. Yeah. So, so yes, to, when, when it started, it was just the idea of like, oh yeah, no, I want to see if doing this entire record in Portuguese, like we'll maybe find new ears. We'll maybe find like, you know, resonance uh, with folks of a similar struggle, but yeah. But now if uh, th- there are songs in, um, there are songs in uh, our upcoming album, Build and Burn, that have Portuguese lyrics uh, often like thrown in with songs with English lyrics. And yeah, to me, those have like a lot more intent, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, like in Homeland Insecurity, that's a song about like feeling disconnected from uh, your first home and your current home. So there's the back and forth made sense to me in in that context. Um, And then, uh, the song, and this was released as the second symbol, uh, single, um, Byakugan Princess, that um, ends with a a, a shouted Portuguese uh, a verse of meu corpo não sil, my body not yours. And that's a song specifically about like, you know, pushing back against, you know, dudes who are just 
fetishists over like specific portions of your identity. Mm-hmm. So that it felt very reclamational in that sense to just have like that shouting section. I see. So little column A, little column B. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm curious. Um, we are now in an era where a Scott Twitter is a thing. Yeah. It's it's honestly pretty phenomenal to witness. I I, I love I love it. <laughs> Have you felt like part of the modern ska scene, you know, for a while or more recently, kind of feeling part of it via Twitter? I'm curious your take on the current scene, the bands you're interested in, and then your more recent connection to it. Yeah, um, I definitely think that like I've never stopped listening to ska, but I think. Uh, this current, uh, you know, wave of Scott Twitter or like, you know, a Sky internet community. I feel like that's really reinvigorated the sense of community around the genre, you know, something that I felt was kind of missing in my life since like the talent farm days, uh, where it's like, yeah, people are just like uplifting new bands for, 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 for the sake of like, not only digging them, but also like forming a community around them. Uh, yeah. And, and it's funny cause uh, again, you know, I'm not in a strictly ska band, but I have just like so much love for it and love like, you know, nerding out about it that it, it does feel really sweet to just have like friends made from the internet out of doing that. <laughs> and mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah, a lot of really incredible music um, has been discovered through that. Like I, you know, love Catbite. I adore Tape Girl. Tape Girl, I like. Jer put me onto her, and it, you know, it it it, it hit that bomb the music industry spot for me. Uh, as well as you know, love hearing another trans voice in ska, and I adore Kmoy. I listen to the Precure album so much, and I've become friends with Kenny since. And like you know, Kenny's out here in New York as well, and like have jammed before uh, phenomenal human being and phenomenal musician. Sometimes in fu- I'm in fucking awe at how good Kenny is. Cause we were jamming one time and Kenny's just like, Oh yeah. So like this part, this chord is like kind of like a D tur- a D 13, but not really anyways, here's how you do it. And I'm just like, uh. <laughs> 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 oh gosh. Um, <laughs> Obviously, I've always enjoyed We Are The Union. I've always liked We Are The Union since I was in high school. Uh, but like this new era of them, like it, it, it's really like, I, I think reinvigorated my love for that band a lot. Just seeing like the different ways that mm-hmm. they progressed and evolved their sound. And, you know, obviously the topics that uh, Reed has become exploring, has started exploring and really resonating with me. Ordinary Life is definitely one of my favorite records of recent years. Really fucking, yeah, just with the just with the entire Bad Time record scene. And, like, Kill Lincoln, I saw, like, I used to see, like, even back at Fest, like, 2013, 2014. I love that they're still holding that down. That band's fantastic. And I saw them with Eichler's um, a couple months back here in New York at Transpicos. And that was, like, my first, like, just pure ska show in like a long time yeah what what was that like oh wonderful i i mean i think i i, I still kind of had some you know uh 
COVID world show anxieties. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of, uh, uh, I haven't done this in a long time. How do my arms and legs work type feelings of like, <laughs> of like, uh, does everyone else feel as weird as I do right now? But no, it, it was super lovely. Yeah. Like people were, people were dancing. Um, it was a mostly masked event from what I recall. Uh, <laughs> Oh yeah, and best of the worst also played that, and they were fantastic. Sorry, I just wanted to throw that in. <laughs> now I remember um, Adam and I both saw um, "We're the Union," Eichlers, and um, half, half Past Two. Also a great band. Yeah, and um, I've been, you know, I've been a fan of these bands, and I've been part of the community of these bands for a while. But to me, in terms of a live event, that seemed like my first real experience of seeing a show, a ska show that felt like this is not the old generation scotch scene this is the new generation ska scene mm-hmm. like it was really it felt super clear and it felt like the bands were embracing it and the audience was embracing it yeah it was uh, really cool I, I was very happy to see it because um you know you have to have the new generation to keep it vibrant totally and yeah i felt that too you know it it, it very much feels like you know, I think I, I I think there's been I think people have maybe put too much importance into the idea of a fucking fourth wave or whatever, but like it, it very much is like a new chapter in like yeah in the genre's presence in our culture, and yeah, it, 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 there's characteristics that are just super unique to this current wave of ska, which I which I love. It makes me super excited. And you're right, it is always important to like see like new generations like kind of give the genre its own identity and its own meaning to them. Yeah. And yeah. And like, I think about things like that. I think about like Eichler's doing like hyper sky and like really like, like all the different like new sounds that has like come out of just that idea. And like, they're a wonderful record. I think about like, you know, bothered unbothered, um, fucking phenomenal album and like jared had even been jared had been sharing demos with me of that one for like a few years so i just be kind of like antsy waiting for it to like be released so yeah. it made me really happy to see it blow up the way it did but like yeah the, just the way that it has like you know hip-hop influence and like indie emo influence like i love seeing that you know because to go back to like what i said earlier i feel like ska just blends so well with other genres you know there's something really, I think, unique about the versatility of ska and like how well it can be worked into other styles of music. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, Grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash In Defense of Ska. You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the In Defense of Ska Discord. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon, 
Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific indefensive ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On that note, we leave you by saying ska now more than ever. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.